0: Hope everybody's doing well. What a good morning already. I'm excited to uh, be here. Excited to be able to partake again and be able to witness another baptism. We're thankful for what God is doing. I ask you to turn your Bibles to the book of Joel. Joel 316. I'm going to give you guys a minute to find it. Some of you take no shame today if you need to go to the front of your Bible and look up where Joel is and see what page number that's on. Me, I put a bookmark in there because I knew where I was going. Look at Joel 3.16. As you just saw, this Sunday begins the beginning of our summer series, Summer in the Minors. We're going to be looking at the minor prophets. And so today is an introduction. Uh, Next week we'll start. Each week we'll look at a different minor prophet. And uh, today is the introduction, and that means there's going to be a lot of information. So I'm going to try to go through this as quickly as I possibly can and just try to get us context for the minors. It's important as we look through uh, these books together that we understand what's going on in their context and in their place and all other things. So we're going to try to do that today. Then we're going to see the five themes, really, that run throughout the minor prophets and end together looking to the coming of Christ. And so ultimately, that's what we're after. Joel 316 uh, today would just kind of be a jumping-off point for this introduction, and I think it does a good job of summarizing what's happening. Just to also note, um, as I feel like every Sunday is, so much going on in the life of our church. This Sunday, we are celebrating, celebrating Graduation Sunday, so we, I think we have almost 30 seniors who are graduating, so we'll be recognizing them at the end of the service and praying for them as well, so... We want to get through this. Joel 3.16, the prophet Joel writes, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this day and this opportunity. We thank you for Lily, what we've already seen in her testimony of following after you with her life. God, we pray that that's the testimony of each and every one of us as we turn from our sins and trust you by faith completely. God, we pray as we look to your word today that you will be exalted in all of this. And as we look to your word, we'll see the necessity of understanding your word, growing in your word, learning from your word. All of these things, God, All of these things we ask by your grace and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure to some of you, the name Bob Uecker is familiar. To some, you may not know Bob Uecker, but he was a mediocre baseball player. Uh, Had a mediocre career. Four teams, five years, 200 batting average, 14 home runs, and 74 RBIs. That's it. Later in life, he would become well-known as a broadcaster. He would become well-known as a, an actor. In fact, if you ever saw the movie Major League, he's the one that says just a bit outside, and we use that all the time. He will be well-known as a comedian. When asked about his unexceptionable career as a baseball player, he would often quip, In 1962, I was named Minor League Player of the Year. It was my second season in the big leagues. Y'all will get that a little bit later. <laughs> in many ways, the minor prophets, as we come to them, are in the same situation as Bob Uecker. Quite oftentimes overlooked and unappreciated. Quite oftentimes, we don't know or tend to know their significance or their importance And as I've joked so many times, when we as believers get to heaven and we meet one of these minor prophets, we want to be able to say we read their book, right? We want to be able to say this, but oftentimes it's a passage or section of scripture that we just kind of jump through. And so as we begin this new series, we want to look through them in this summer to do just that, to take a look, to not overlook them, but to appreciate them for what they are and what they teach us. And I believe what they teach us is right and important, important for us even today. And so that's why we look to this series. And that means as we introduce these minor prophets, I think it's right we start with an introduction There's going to be a lot of information up front here. There's going to be a lot of discussion. We're going to talk about who are the prophets and and what were the minor prophets and where do they fit in connection with the rest of the Old Testament. And we're, we're going to discuss the context of history with these minor prophets and understand who they were writing to and what they were writing for. And my goal this morning is to bring light in with all of this information especially about a section of our Bible here that, as I said, is often overlooked and surely understudied. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so we look to these Prophets with this truth in mind. This is God's word for us, and it is given to us for reproof and correction and for training so that we can be complete. Not only were these prophets writing in their context to a certain people at a certain time, they're also writing, as that passage in Timothy says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit which means that their message transcends context and it transcends time and it's good for us today. It is the Word of God. When we understand the Old Testament, it's clear how Jesus understood it, that it was broken down into three sections. He says this in Luke's gospel. He says what was written in the law and the prophets and the writings. The Old Testament is broken down into those three sections. The the law being the first five books written by Moses. The prophets, our concern at this time, being a large portion of the Old Testament written by men inspired by the Spirit in their context, in their place for their people. And the writings dominated by the Psalms and some of the history. Those are the three sections. The prophets, then, is a section we're concerned about, played a very important role in the history of Israel. Understand, when you read the Old Testament, three offices come out in the history of Israel. These three offices were used, three separate offices, used to to carry out uh, God's ways and teach God's people his, His truth. That was the office of prophet, the office of priest, and the office of king. The priest had a specific role. He was to offer sacrifice, prayers, and praises to God, represented the people of God to God. The king ruled over God's people as God's representative, ruling them as his representative to teach them and show them what it meant to follow after God. The prophet spoke God's word to the people. God gave his word to his people through his prophet. And that's the section we're, we're talking through now. The section that's referred to by Jesus when he says the law, the prophets, and the writing is this section of the prophets. And, and then who does the prophets include? There's two main groups here. There's the former prophets. These former prophets have a lot of history in them, yet they're referred to as prophets. That's Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and then the author of Kings there. These are historical books, but it's God's word teaching his people through history and for what happened, his truth. And then we have the latter prophets, the former prophets and the latter prophets. These are the more traditionally under this is the more traditionally understood prophets, uh, which tell us the truth to God's people. They're, they're giving them their present condition, telling them what is coming. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then the book of the twelve. That's the latter prophets. It's this book of the 12 that we're referring to when we call them minor prophets. This is what they have been referred to in church history. These minor prophets are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Packaged in one book called the Book of the Twelve, these 12 prophets are called the Minor Prophets, not because they're less significant, just simply because they're shorter. The Major Prophets are longer writings and dealing with greater, bigger things, and then these prophets are are shorter writings, and they've been packaged together as the Book of the Twelve. That's simply why they're called Minor. Now, to understand these prophets and their writings, we must understand their context in the history of Israel. Israel is composed of 12 tribes. These 12 tribes of Israel reached their height and their power and their influence during the reign of David and Solomon. During David and Solomon's reign, they, they were influential all throughout their area. But after Solomon dies, Rehoboam takes his place. Rehoboam's policies are not well received to say the least. This caused the 10 tribes, 12 tribes, there's 10 to the north. This caused the 10 tribes to rebel and break away from the south. And that becomes the northern kingdom, what's referred to in scripture as Israel. The northern kingdom over the next 200 years would have 19 different kings and all of them were bad. In fact, as it says, every one of those kings did what was evil in their own sight. They, were for, they, forsake, they forsook the worship of the one true and living God. They raised up altars and sacrifices to other gods all throughout their territory. And because of their sinfulness and idol worship, in the year 722 BC, the Assyrians came in and conquered the northern kingdom. Hosea and Amos prophesy to the northern kingdom. They prophesied to this kingdom before this conquest comes, warning them of what is coming. That left two tribes in the south then. If the ten went north and they rebelled and and were taken off by the Assyrians, there's two tribes left in the south, Judah and the small tribe of Benjamin. These two together would just simply be known as Judah being brought in because, because of Judah's size and Judah's prominence in the history of Israel. This was the southern kingdom. Judah had a mixed bag of kings. Some were good and some were bad. They stayed true longer, but but soon even they rejected God. And because of this, in 586 BC, Babylon came in under Nebuchadnezzar and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and took everyone to Babylon. Jerusalem was not completely flat. This was known as the exile period. Micah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Nahum, all of these prophesied to Judah prior to the exile. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi prophesied to Judah after the return from the exile. Now that leaves just a few books, Joel, Obadiah, and Jonah, and their prophecy to the people was true and sure, but their dates are not as clear and not necessarily as critical to their understanding. All of this history sets in context. Everything flows around what's happening so we understand who these prophets are. And throughout the summer, you will hear us referring to the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom or the exile or prior to the exile. You'll hear those things. Now, with all that as the background, and I'm sure with most of you still awake, I want to bring out and consider what these main points of these prophets are. So as we consider who they are and their context and their place, what are the main points that these prophets are bringing out to us throughout all of their books? And this is kind of an exercise of of me reading through this, talking with others, reading uh, commentaries and other things. What What are some key principles? And I got five here, key main themes from the prophets. First, the prophets demonstrate the undeniability undeniable sovereignty of God. The undeniable sovereignty of God. David says in the Psalms, Psalm 135, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the depths. The sovereignty of God is a bedrock truth of all of scripture. And that's clear in the minor prophets as well. All of Scripture teaches us that God is in absolute control of all things. Nothing is outside of His power or His agency or His wisdom. All of it is under God's control. And that truth that's all throughout Scripture is played out in these minor prophets in a specific or a clear way. God has authority. God has power. God has wisdom. To do all he pleases is a truth that we must hold on to when we understand who our God is. Joel 3.16 even speaks to this that I read earlier. The Lord roars from Zion, utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. Not a single atom exists nor a single event occurs other than under the settled sovereignty of God. When you read these passages, the exile itself, God comes in and he tells them, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to punish you by sending other nations if you continue in your sin. And sure enough, God even uses the Assyrians and the Babylonians to carry out his plan, using them to to bring punishment and judgment on his people for their sinfulness. God is in control of all things. I remember watching a documentary about the Miami Hurricanes in the 1980s, and Jimmy Johnson comes in as coach. This was before he went to the Dallas Cowboys. He was trying to clean it up. They had a a bad attitude and a bad reputation. So Jimmy Johnson comes in as coach, and he says, Listen, we only have two rules here. You can do what I tell you to do, and you can do what I let you do. That's good for parents, too. Y'all can use that. You can do what I tell you and you can do what I allow you. That's it. And in many ways, that's how we understand who God is with the whole universe. The only things that occur are what he decrees and what he allows in this way. And so under his power and under his authority, he does, holds all things in his hands. Many people question this truth. Oh, God is sovereign, and, and he's all-powerful, and he has all wisdom. So, so especially when it comes to trials or difficulties or bad things that happen, how, how does that fit? Well, I'll be the first to tell you, I don't know all of those answers. But I will tell you this. Consider the alternative. Consider the alternative that God is not in control, that he's not all-powerful, that he doesn't hold all things in his hands. That means that when difficulties and trials and and bad things come, then then we have no idea of knowing where they come from or who's in charge or what purpose they serve or what good things they may do for us in the long run. We have no idea of that. It is much clearer in Scripture for us to know, while we don't know what God is doing in every situation, it's very clear for us to know that in all things, God is working out for for the good of those who love him. Everything that comes our way is is coming from a God who cares for us and loves us. So Charles Spurgeon would say, when we go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is not a burden for us, but it's the pillow upon which we lay our head. It's the comfort we can have that no matter what it may be, God is in control. God is in control. God's sovereignty is seen throughout all of the prophets here. But not only that, we see God's definite judgment against sin. We see his sovereignty and we see his judgment against sin. A lot is said about God's hatred of sin in the prophets. Not only his hatred of sin, but his, his righteous punishment of it. In Joel 3.12, just above our passage, it says, Let the nations stir themselves up and come up from the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. God will judge not only his people, and we'll see that, but he will judge the nations. All sin will be brought to his feet, and he will pronounce righteous judgment of it all. All the nations will be judged, including his own, including his own. Hosea will be one we'll look at next week where God will use this this picture of the relationship between Hosea and Gomer to show his judgment for his people. Or or Amos chapter 1 verse 2, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers from the deepest of valleys to the highest of mountain. When God brings his judgment, all of the earth will listen. And we'll be brought forward. There's coming, as Malachi chapter 4 says, an awesome day of the Lord where everyone will have to give an account for all things they have done. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. But beside His judgment, the coming definite judgment of God against sin, we see throughout the prophets His amazing love over and over and over again. There's this terrible caricature of scripture that says that the Old Testament was about God's wrath and the New Testament is about his love and I want you to take that and flush it away from you because it's a terrible understanding of God's word. We see God's love throughout all of scripture. And by all means, like I said, I believe when we get to the New Testament, it's not as if God's wrath has been replaced with his love The wrath of God is ratcheted up even more in the New Testament because in the New Testament, God places his wrath not on those who deserve it, but on his son who does not. And ultimately, what we see and understand here in the Old Testament in these prophets is is that God will bring judgment, but he loves his people. God's love runs like this river, this mighty river throughout all of these books as we study them. As Joel chapter 2 verse 13 says, He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. This is the God that we serve here. Again, displayed in Hosea. Hosea is a picture, and we'll see more of this next week. It's a picture how God says to Hosea to take a wife who will be a prostitute, Gomer, and she will be unfaithful. And that's how you have been to me. My people has been to me. You've been unfaithful. And when he takes Gomer as his wife, she goes around, as the scripture says, to other lovers in other ways, and they use her and they abuse her until you get to chapter three. And there is Gomer, Hosea's wife, on sale as a slave It even tells us she stands there naked and unwanted, and those who she's run to no longer have any use for her or any care for her. And so she's standing on the auction block, and no one is bidding for her until Hosea says, I will take her. And ultimately, that's exactly what we see. The love of God is displayed for his people when it was seeming as if they had run away. They had went to other lovers. They'd gone to other things They've gone to other places, turned to everything but God, and then they were left undone and destitute. But God says, that's still mine. They belong to me. And his love is seen in calling her back out. As Zephaniah chapter 3, 17 says, "'The Lord your God is in your midst, "'a mighty one who will save. "'He will rejoice over you with gladness. "'He will quiet you by his love.'" He will exult over you with loud singing. The God of the universe looks at his people and rejoices, gives his love to them, and sings over them. This is the rejoicing power of God in the minor prophets, the love of God on display. Minor prophets teach us clearly that God loves his people in spite of his people's actions, in spite of what they do. And because of that, the prophets, because of God's great love, the prophets, number four theme here, the prophets call God's people to get right with God. Throughout all of the prophets is a call to repentance. Your sinfulness has set you against him, but God loves you, so come back to him. That's the message of the prophets. Not just calling them to condemnation, but calling them to return. His love is gracious, his love is kind, his love is never-ending. Come back to him. Quit going after other lovers. Quit going after other things. Come back to the one who truly loves you, who truly cares for you. Don't stand in his judgment. Return to him. From Hosea to Malachi, that becomes the theme. Return to the Lord. Come back to him. That's Hosea chapter 6 Hosea chapter 6, this beautiful picture of repentance says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers and as the spring rains that water the earth come, let us return to the Lord. The prophets most assuredly are warning about judgment against sin. That's true. But they're also calling us to repentance, to follow after a God who loves you and return back to him and receive that never-ending love of God. Now here, At Taylors, we've been clear so many times about what the gospel is. We try to put the gospel in everything. The gospel is is life and salvation. And, And we say the gospel has four parts, basically. God, a holy, sovereign God who we must answer to. Man is sinful and has rebelled and judgment is coming because of their sin. God's love comes to us, his love for sinners because he is slow to anger and rich in love, and we are to return to him by response. God, man, Christ, response. Ultimately, what we see is these themes that pull themselves out of the minor prophets are the very same themes that we see running throughout all of the scriptures, Old Testament and New, of the promises of God and his good gospel to us. Though God is holy and sovereign and we have sinned against him and judgment is coming, there is a love that has come to redeem us and save us, so all of us must repent and follow after him and turn to him the gospel itself is the theme of the minor prophets and who is this one i told you there was 5 the one that sums all of this up the prophets speak very clearly of the coming messiah their theme is letting us know that there is one who is coming that will rescue you. There is one who is coming that will do what you cannot do. He will save you. He will redeem you. He will call you unto himself. There is one who is coming, and he will be like a lion, like a lion. Now, that fits in the greater context of Scripture. Genesis chapter 49 as Jacob is blessing his sons. He looks to Judah, become the leader of the tribe of Judah. And he says to Judah, there will be one that comes from you like a lion's cub. And he will be raised up and, and, and all of his brothers will bow down to him and the scepter will not pass from him. He will rule and he will reign and his kingdom will be forever. And so all of us are looking then throughout scripture for that lion of the tribe of Judah who would come and rule and reign forever. And we know, we know that that lion that came for us is Jesus Christ himself because Revelation 5 tells us as John is looking for someone fit to open up the scroll that elder comes and says don't weep john there is one who is here the lion of the tribe of judah has conquered and he points john to the throne where jesus himself sits jesus is that lion he's the one who comes to conquer and the minor prophets the minor prophets tell us that he will return and when he returns he will roar like a lion he will roar like a lion I remember whenever my oldest son was young, we were living in Louisville, Kentucky, and we went to the zoo in Louisville, Kentucky. And I don't know if y'all have ever, like, I've been to the zoo, Riverbanks, that's where I grew up going to in Columbia. It's a nice zoo. Louisville Zoo is nice. It's really hilly. So if you're ever there, you might want to just get your good shoes on. And so we were there, and we were at the lion's den, right? And they're there, and there's just a fence. You know how it works. There's just this wooden fence here, and then there's a big ditch. And so from me to about middle of this section is a lion. And I'm look, telling Wiles, look, there's a lion right there. And we see the lion kind of sit up, and he's moving. So now it's exciting. And then all of a sudden, this lion sat up on his haunches, put his feet down, stretched out a little bit, and then let out a roar. And I cried. <laughs> I don't know what Wiles did, but I think his face peeled off. <laughs> it was the most terrifying thing I've ever heard. This, the inside shook. Y'all you know what I'm saying? I mean, this thing was terrifying. And the only thing that saved me at the moment was the confidence in a ditch right in front of us. Well, could you imagine hearing that in the wild with no confidence of a ditch? When we get to the minor prophets, there says there's coming a day when the lion will roar. Look with me to Hosea, just a few chapters over. Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11, verse 10. They shall go after the Lord, and He will roar like a lion, and when He roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I shall return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Or, or even as we read earlier from Amos, chapter one, verse two, all of these books are right here together, just a few pages apart. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel weeps. Here, these two passages show us that, that the Lord is going to roar when it's time. And when he does... Two things will happen. In fact, Joel puts those two things together in our passage, Joel 3.16. The Lord roars from Zion, utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. And so there's two things that's going to take place. One, when the Lord roars, there will be clear judgment. Everything will wither. Everything will melt away. The earth will shake. The heavens will shake. Judgment has come. But at the same time... Time When the Lord roars, he will be a refuge for his people. As Hosea says, the cubs will come running. Can you imagine this truth if you can? When the lion steps into the field, when the lion steps into the field and lets out his roar, it means two things. If you are his cub, daddy's home, right? Protection is here. Safety has come. I have everything I need because my my father has come into this presence and into this place. But if you are an enemy, maybe food for that lion, what do you think? I better get out of here. He says, that's exactly what's going to happen. When the lion roars, there's only two kinds of people. Those consider that comfort and those that consider that terror. There's only two kinds. But my friends, I think think if I can, let you know that these truths speak for us today, right? Because this, this is not just what the prophets were talking about. This is us. We're waiting on the lion to roar. These passages are pointing us not just to the first coming of the Messiah, but to the second coming of the Messiah, We're waiting on the time when the lion would roar for us. God is sovereign. He will judge sin. He has shown his love for us through Jesus. And God calls us to repent. For there is coming a time when repentance will no longer be possible. When the lion roars, the earth will shake. And his children will come home and his enemies will flee. But notice that his enemies cannot get far enough away from him. For we have a prophetic book, if you will, in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 6. Speaking of that moment, the opening of the sixth seal, showing him what is coming in the future. Notice what is said here to John in the book of Revelation. When he opened the sixth seal, chapter 6, verse 12, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. Sounds a lot like Joel and Amos, right? There was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Doesn't this sound like Joel? When caramel withers and melts away, then verse 15. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free. It wants to be clear. No one's getting away. The most wealthiest, the most privileged, the most powerful of them all. Everyone hears this. No one gets away from it. And it says, they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains Verse 16, in many ways, is terrifying. Calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The Lord roars from Zion. And that roar means one of two things for each and every one of us in this room. Either that is the call that it's time to go home. He has come for us. And we rejoice and come with trembling and joy. That trembling of Hosea is not a trembling of fear but of excitement. It's time. The Lord roars and it's time. Or we will run for our life. And head to the caves and to the rocks. And say fall on us for it would be better to be crushed by these rocks than to face that one. The prophets tell us that this day is coming. And for us in this room we know this day is coming. That's why this message of the prophets is a message for us today. Where do you stand with the lion of the tribe of Judah? Judah. Is he your savior? Is he your friend? Is he the one who has shown you mercy and you have known him, follow him, and love him? Or do you still compete against him? Do you still believe you don't need him? Well, there's only two types of people in the world, those who find their safety and their comfort through the precious blood of the lamb and the lion that has come for us, or those who still believe you can make it on your own. Well, you will be confronted with an almighty power powerful God who will judge sin and you too may plead for the rocks to fall on you but God I pray you don't I pray when the Messiah comes again when the lion roars again that it will be joy and excitement for us all for he has come for us that's why the scripture says don't tarry with this For today is the day of salvation. For as far as we know, as the prophets say themselves, and as the scripture teaches us constantly, as far as we know, the lion may roar this very minute. And when he does, the opportunity for repentance is over. Facing the judgment has come. May it be one. May that be a day that you don't dread, but that you look forward to. May that be a day that you don't fear, but that you long for. And the only way that's possible is for you today to turn from your sin that demands the judgment of God, to repent of it, and trust in the Messiah who has come for you, the Lamb who was slain on your behalf, Jesus Christ the Lord. That's the only way. May that be the case for all of us here. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives. And God, we pray now as you work and as you move in this place, that everyone here will know where they stand with the lion of the tribe of Judah. And no one will leave here, Father, still believing they can confront him in their own power and their own strength. They don't have to, God. For you are rich in love and you are slow to anger and your mercy is great and anyone who calls on your name shall be saved. And so God may we look to that day not with fear and trembling but with excitement and joy because we we look to that day trusting and believing in Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. May we all, Father, be trusting and believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you're here today and you need to trust and believe, we have ministers and and, and teams waiting at the back of the room that would love to speak to you more about this. Today is the day. Do not tarry as we understand our desperate need for Christ. Fall on him. Let's stand together and sing.